The past few weeks, we have been focusing on how we are to love God, the, the Lord our God, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We now turn our focus to how God wants us to love one another. So let us hear God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. This is the word of the Lord. May the word and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, a rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The late, great American psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, once said, and I paraphrase, the most tragic word in the human language today is the word unloved. Everybody, each and every one of us, has a strong desire to be loved. There's nothing worse than feeling unloved. There's nothing more devastating than feeling unloved. And there's nothing more destructive than feeling unloved. On the other hand, Dr. Menninger went on to say that love has the power to cure people, both those who give it and those who receive it. The heart prints of love can restore, they can mend, and they can heal. Dr. Menninger was a Christian, and he got the healing power of love from Jesus. When all has been said and done, when every subtle thing has been dissected and analyzed, Jesus' gospel message of love comes to us as incredibly simple, but hugely subversive, and about as easy to grasp as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I'm intrigued by the notion that what we are all about as Christians and people of faith is not merely faith but ultimately love. As we abide in Christ, our faith will evoke love and our love will bear witness to our faith. But how do we go about this? How do we accomplish this? How does love get lived? It's all well and good to discuss it and even to theologize it, but how is it lived in your life and in mine? and in the heart of community. And what is it that Jesus is really asking us to do? Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
In other words, it's not about our determination to love or be loved. It's about the grace and love of God that has already come to abide in you and in me. Now, we find it relatively easy to choose the ones we love. We choose our life partners. We choose the church we want to belong to. We choose the clubs we want to belong to. And we make friends according to whom we like and how we get along. But it is much more difficult to love those we don't choose. So how do we answer God's call to love those outside our family and our friends? Well, first of all, we look at how Jesus lived his life. He is our model and our vision. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He called the poor blessed, criticized the powerful, and praised the confessions of common folks. He mingled with foreigners and told stories about those who were far off. He embraced children. He decried piety and noticed tiny acts of sacrifice in the name of friendship. Jesus constantly pressed at the margins for justice and welcomed those who were different from him, precisely because they were useless to others and were cast-offs from normal society. And he added to all of this, saying, You didn't choose me. I chose you. In other words, the gospel calls us to go to the margins of our own spirits, our own comfort zones, to discover what love is all about. We are not called to love where it is simple, acceptable, and easy. In the heart of our own heart, we are called to go to places where love is complex and difficult and can even be a little messy. In a time when tolerance passes for charity and love is being legislated everywhere, even in our churches and our government, we are called out to places where it is uncomfortable and unpopular. It's here that we might discover true mutuality and genuine love. In the film, number 42, which many of you may have seen, it was said in the 1940s, we are reminded that black veterans of World War II had returned to America to face racism, segregation, and pro-laws. Jack Robinson, a promising young baseball player who attended school here in Pasadena and in, started at UCLA and who was memorialized in front of the Pasadena City Hall, found himself relegated to playing in what was called at that time the Negro Baseball League, a fine collection of baseball talent, but one that was relegated to having its teams play in virtual obscurity. Long bus rides, subpar playing conditions, and being prohibited from decent food and lodging establishments were the norm rather than the exception. Until legendary Brooklyn Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey, who was never known for his social grace, decided that it is time to change the game of baseball. Just a year removed from the end of the Second World War, Rickey put himself at the forefront of history 
when he signed Robinson to a major league contract, a deal that would break baseball's infamous color barrier. In doing so, the duo faced a barrage of hateful prejudice from the public, the press, and the vast majority of the other players. Yet, for all the racial injustice that ensued during that first season, Robinson ultimately wins over the fans and his teammates. One of those teammates was Harold Henry Reese, better known as Pee Wee Reese, whose nickname originated in his childhood as a champion's marbles player. You know, those little tiny marbles that they played with? They were called Little Pee Wees, and hence his nickname. Reese, born in Meade County, Kentucky, was raised there until nearly eight years old. His family moved to the racially segregated Louisville, Kentucky. It's reported that his father had made him starkly aware of racial injustice by showing him a tree where a lynching had occurred. When a sports writer asked Reese if the possibility of Robinson taking his position of shortstop threatened him, Reese simply responded, if he can take my job, he's entitled to it. Reese refused to sign a petition that would boycott Robinson if he joined the team. After Robinson joined the Dodgers in 1947 and traveled with them during their first road trip, fans in Cincinnati, Ohio, mercilessly heckled him with vengeance and hatred. During pregame infield practice at Crosley Field, then home of the Cincinnati Reds, Reese, who was the team captain, slowly walked over to Robinson, engaged him in a conversation, and then put his arm around Robinson's shoulder in a gesture of support and friendship until the crowd finally settled down and became silent. This was a true act of selfless love, of living out Christ's command to love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This gesture was so profound that it is depicted today in a bronze sculpture of Reese and Robinson and is placed at the entrance of the municipal ballpark in Brooklyn, New York. It was a gesture that set the stage for racial equality here in America. Yet, nearly 70 years later, hatred instead of love, still runs rampant in our society today. Only a few weeks ago, we experienced the horrific event at the hands of a young madman driven by racial hatred who entered the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, with murderous rage, killing people who were engaged in a Bible study. William Schweiker reflects upon this event in his article entitled Mercy, the Bedrock of Civil Society. He says it's important to note what grabs people's attention and what does not. 
More is going on than the media even understands. He makes two points. First, in ways that are almost humanly unimaginable and maybe even divine, he says some members of the Charleston church confronting the attacker at his hearing asked him to repent and to join the Bible study and grant him mercy. Years ago, the philosopher Hannah Arndt noted that Jesus was the one who discovered forgiveness in political life. The ability to start anew after traumatic and horrific events. She thought forgiveness touches a very deep fact of human life. She called it natality, the ability to start something new. In a nation constantly divided by race and economic standing, gender conflicts, and an endless war on terrorism, every, the everyday common folks at Emmanuel AME Church embodied the central truth of Christian conviction to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Mercy, not vengeance, was the mark of their faith. And while this has been widely and rightly noted, it has not been explored as the bedrock for civil society. Schweiker goes on to say every church, mosque, synagogue, and temple in the land should look to this South Carolina congregation and say, there by grace should we also live. Forgiveness is the only answer to a society of hate and slaughter if we are to survive our self-made horror. And secondly, Schweiker says, it is crucial that the innocents gunned down were at a Bible study class. Odd and important is that fact. Everyone with a smattering of knowledge of the Bible, and he says these people are admittedly fewer and fewer by the day, knows what the Bible is knows that the Bible is not a peaceful collection of books. There's war and mayhem, despair, suffering, and fury that run through page after page after page. But the people at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston are teaching what it means to live out an interpretation of Scripture from its humane core, from the point of its testimony to divine mercy. He concludes by saying, there is no future to social life or to the world's religions without the beginning that mercy inaugurates. The dear folks in Charleston are beacons of hope in a society of hate. End quote. In a sermon entitled, The Power of Love, Paul Tillich one of the great theological minds of the 20th century, writes of a Swedish woman who aided prisoners and orphans during World War II. She ended up in a concentration camp herself because she gave aid and comfort. Tillich writes, it's a rare gift to meet a human being in whom love, this means God, is so overwhelmingly manifest it undercuts theological arrogance as well as pious isolation. It is more than justice and greater than faith or hope. 
It is the very presence of God in the form of a human being. For God is love. In every moment of genuine love, we are dwelling in God and God in us. Do you know such a person? Will you be such a person? Pray with me. Eternal God, we thank you for Jesus who, through the healing power of love, brought hope to the distressed, promise to the despairing, and healing to the afflicted. In him there is the gift of life eternal to all who believe. Let love lead us to be more forgiving and add to love the discipline to be a reconciling force in the world. When enemies taunt us, assure us of your presence as we seek patience and inner strength. Amid tensions caused by misunderstanding, suspicion, or lack of trust, send your spirit of insight and hope. Help us make the first move toward those we have offended, forsaking our pride in seeking peace. Let love lead us to be more daring. Give us the boldness to speak out on behalf of the voiceless. Let us not be afraid to venture into dark places or into situations in which we are not in control. Fill us with the confidence that you will not desert us and the assurance that what we do is in accord with your will. Keep us from becoming frustrated by the many faces of evil and set our sights on those injustices that we can overcome. Let love lead us to be more trusting and give us the faith to make Christ supreme in our lives. Help us translate our words of confession into acts of compassion, our desire to be faithful into deeds of obedience. Your love does indeed work wonders. Work now in us so that others may behold your love. O oh, gracious and loving God, keep us true to our promise to love one another and to love you. For nothing is easier than to love merely in our words and the inner speech of our prayers. Help us to love in deeds that are as visible as Jesus' acts of compassion and mercy. And impress upon our hearts, O oh God, the truth that nothing is so urgently needed in our world as love in action and nothing so deeply desired as the shelter of your peace. God, keep us faithful to our promise to love as you are ever faithful in fulfilling your promises to us. Merciful God, strengthen us in prayer that we may lift up the brokenness of this world for your healing and share in the saving love of Jesus Christ. Today we pray for the newly baptized little Jack, Help us as a congregation to support his family and him as he grows in faith and love. We pray for the hospitalized and the homebound, those also who are grieving the loss of loved ones in the Chattanooga, Tennessee Naval Operations Center. 
We pray for those who are putting their lives together following disasters of nature and of war, and those in positions of authority over others, as well as those who govern the nations of our world. We pray for those who strive to make our world a safer place to live. We also pray for our Malawi and Thailand mission teams as they minister to the people in their midst, building relationships, faith, and understanding. And now we bring to you, in a time of silence, our personal prayers. <laughs> 